0: Well, good morning, church. There are a lot of insights and powerful truths that are in all of these chapters. And as was already stated, if we would take the time to go in depth into each and every one of these truths, we'd be here for a long time. So I just wanted to say that up front and to tell you that today I'm going to go as far as uh, where Peter and the disciples pray in the place was shaken. And I'm not saying that to, to not give due diligence to the end, but I think what was previously spoken of in uh, the last time pertaining to this, uh, <clears throat> it was done very well and very eloquently. And I, um, in trying to keep from anybody falling asleep in the window and falling out for the length of the sermon, I, I've chosen to, to stop there. So, so this morning... I thought it's, it's important to, to give just a backdrop. Have you ever read a book and then you kind of put it down and then you come back to it and you put it down and you got to kind of refresh yourself? So I think in reading through the chapter, uh, the, the book of Acts here, it's, it's like I want to stay on top of what's going on here. It's every, every chapter builds on the preceding chapter and, and, and going forward. And so... Um, I thought it important to go ahead and just give a brief backdrop to the uh, to what has transpired. So in Acts chapter one, um, Luke writes that I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, and the implication is that there is more to come. And so he he instructs his followers to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to be my witnesses. So they. They purpose to do this. They're of one accord. They devote themselves to prayer until that happens. In Acts chapter 2, heaven invades from the spiritual realm to the physical realm with the sound of a rushing mighty wind. The Holy Spirit is poured out. And the people that are gathered there for the annual feast of weeks hear this and come together. And one of the things that I just want you to note. That there's similar words that are used in the in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter three, where it says they're bewildered they're astonished they're amazed now seems to me like in another place in the gospel in Matthew to be exact, when Jesus taught, they were astonished, they were amazed, so this should not be a a new thing uh in terms of this wording, but this is their response to what they see going on and uh, and Peter, uh, he stands up and then he says, uh, as was eloquently quoted in a, in a sermon uh, too long ago, this is it guys, this is what you're looking for. These are signposts posts that are going, uh, that are saying that the big event is, is coming and, and that we're in the last days. And he speaks about from the prophet Joel and he gets their attention and they're listening. And he tells them, uh, that Jesus, whom they crucified and he was raised again, is the rightful king. and we 'll see going forward, and from Acts chapter two and Acts chapter three and Acts chapter four and forward, Peter stays on message. He does not deviate away from this, and Luke is wanting to make the primary point, the big point, that the resurrection is primary, that Jesus is the rightful king. And that's going to be played out time and time again. And like hitting a nail on the head, Luke is doing this over and over again. And we're going to see this. In Acts chapter 3, they're, they're on the way to a prayer meeting. They're on their way to the temple. And what happens? God decides to move through his disciples, Peter and John, before they get into the temple. And once again, the crowd is amazed. Uh, that the blind the, bl- the blind, the blind, the lame beggar is healed. And the people know this, and they and they run. They run to where he where he is, and they want to know what's going on. And Peter once again tells them that it is it is by God. It is th- through faith in his name, and that uh, that has made this man whole. And then he tells them that it is once again th- that Jesus whom you crucified, was raised again and is, is the coming king and who's going to restore all things, that this is what's unfolding, that this is what's happening. And you're seeing, you're seeing evidences of this. And that's in, that's in uh, Acts chapter 3. And, and so now I want to just direct your thoughts to a phrase at the beginning of Acts chapter 4. And that is this. So Peter's, Peter's preaching. And then in Acts chapter 4, the very beginning, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Is there anybody here who is not familiar with Star Wars? I don't see a hand going up. Okay, I'll explain it to him later. But you know, you know that the Imperial March is the, the theme of evil. And while I'm talking about the empire, there is another evil empire, if you will, a hierarchy, if you will, that we contend with, that we wrestle with. And so going into the message today in Acts 4, I've entitled the sermon, The Empire Strikes Back. But I want you to know, and I want it to be made perfectly clear that though the empire strikes back, the empire will never prevail. And that there will be many times that the empire will strike back. But this is nothing new. We see it throughout the scriptures. You can go back as early as how many times have we referenced Genesis already, but you can see it from Genesis all the way all the way through the New Testament. We see it in in the life of Jesus in his ministry that as as his uh as he grew in popularity and as he's advancing the kingdom, the opposition increases against him to where he doesn't even go into the to the temple anymore and uh and and so. This is nothing new. We can see back in, for example, with the uh, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, how the surrounding nations said and and tried to harass them and intimidate them, that's not going to happen. We're not going to let it happen. So throughout scripture, we see that numerous times. The empire has tried to strike back, but they failed. And so this morning, What I want to do, the emphasis is not going to be on the empire striking back. But the the emphasis, if you will, if I could say this, is going to be on the source. The source is with us, the source is strong with us. Okay, that's my play on words, okay? It's a tough audience, but please don't throw any tomatoes. But it makes the point. He is the source. I'm not just kind of doing all cute theatrics here he's the alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. Peter in Acts chapter three, he addresses him and calls him in the sermon that he preaches there and the message that he is the author of life. so it is okay to call him the source because he is he's the creator and he's, he's fully right to do that and I can just see as I said that that God's kind of rolling his eyes oh brother really did you just do that yeah I did but that's okay God expresses himself differently through each one of us I'm not an NT right I'm not a Tom Kreuter but I am who I am by the grace of God and this is how he's wired me and this is what he's put on my heart to share with you guys so that the source is strong with us and not only is the source strong with us but he's in us he lives in us And he empowers us. And so, you know, I'm intrigued about if they hadn't interrupted, what would the rest of the message been? It says, as they were speaking. And we know that from what they were speaking, 5,000 more souls are saved and come to the Lord. That's powerful. These were not just nice words that Peter and John were proclaiming. And... uh, you know, it's, it's amazing to me. You would think with the preaching of good news, you would think that with hearts being set free and liberated and being filled with joy and seeing, seeing people heal like the man in Acts chapter 3 there, that that would be welcome news for everybody, including the religious leaders. <laughs> eh. No, it wasn't. You would think, I would think that good news would always be good news unless unless you're like the rulers of that day, the religious leaders of that day, the elders of that day who thought that the world revolved around them, who would lay burdens and things upon the people that they themselves would not even be an example to or help or in, in some way do what was asked of them. They were great at laying burdens on people But they knew the influence that they had economically, socially, and politically with the government. They loved that clout. And they didn't want any rival. They didn't want any competitor. They didn't want anybody that threatened their status quo. They viewed whoever it would be a threat. And their thoughts were, what we did with Jesus... I thought that took care of it. Well, surprise, surprise. That didn't. And so what what was it that had gotten him so riled up? God's plan of salvation, this is N.T. Wright. God's plan of salvation was always intended to reach its climax with Israel's Messiah undertaking his ultimate rescuing task. The anointed king would come to the place where evil was reaching its height, where their greatest human systems would reveal their greatest corruption, Rome with its much-vaunted system of justice, revealing itself rotten at the core, Israel with its celebrated temple and hierarchy, revealing itself hollow at its heart, and where this accumulated evil would blow itself out in one great act of unwarranted violence against the person of all, against the one person who of all had done nothing to deserve it. That, the early Christians believed, was what God had always intended. And then what what Steve had shared last week when he read from Acts 3, he said, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the temple. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up this servant, send him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So the religious leaders of that day, those that were in authority, they did not want their world upended. And God has promised to restore all things. And they wanted no part of that. And so they, I like the way it says, uh, um, uh, in verse one there, the Sadducees came upon them and it was like, wow, it's like, a, it's like a locust ascending on a field. It's like, like something just coming upon them and, and they're, they're arrested and they're, they're thrown into prison, into jail overnight until the next day. And as I said before, the number of the men that came to, to believe on the word that was preached was, was 5,000. So the next day, you know when I when I get up here and preach it it is encouraging to me to see a bunch of faces filled with love and smiles and and countenances that that are are friendly if I could say it this way But I want you to put yourself in the uh, position of Peter and John now and uh and it says that uh, on the next day, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, and the Pharisees, the, the high priest, everything that, that, that Trish had read here, all those, all those leaders, they had set them in the midst. So now instead of seeing a bunch of nice, warm, friendly, godly faces, we've got, uh, there's an audience surrounding them that their, their body language, their facial expressions uh, are, I would say, uh, Hostile? The word, it says they were greatly annoyed. They were deeply grieved. So just imagine what that looks like. You know, in later chapters, when, when Stephen preaches, it says that the people, when he spoke, they gnashed their teeth. So I can't imagine that this was just like, you know, a couple of guys who escorted Peter and John out and said, you know, come with this. You know, you're disrupting. There was a whole throng that took them and put them in prison. And now this whole throng, the Sanhedrin, so we're talking about a throng. In the Sanhedrin, there are 70 people. And we're not including the other people that were there that were of, of the authority in that day. So there is a crowd. And, he sets, and they are set in the midst. And so all of this, putting them in prison and setting them in the midst and letting them uh, you know, be there overnight, it was all with the purpose to intimidate them. You know what they do in football when it comes to the end of the game and the field goal kicker comes on? And he's about to kick. You know what the other team does, the opposition? Time out. They want to freeze the kicker. They want to put as much pressure on him to think that you're not going to make this kick. You're not going to win the game. We're purposely icing you to get you to think about and intimidate you. And and we've all seen that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But the the, the tactics here are to intimidate and I would dare say even to get them to to, to be afraid and to turn tail and run and to say we're not going to advance the kingdom of God. We're not going to go forward. That's the tactics. And you know, we know from scripture that fear has torment. All right? This just, this just wasn't... This, this was to get inside their head. But here is what they didn't count on. And so I would, get, I would give this to you as, as a takeaway, in Matthew chapter ten, and in and and, uh, and Luke, and uh, where P, uh, well in in Matthew chapter ten, where Jesus is about to send the disciples out as as sheep among the wolves, and again in in Luke chapter twelve, it says the same thing. But it says, you know, in that hour, when, when they bring you in the synagogue before them, don't worry about what to say. I will give you the words to say, and it's going to be me. It's going to be the Holy Spirit speaking through you. What a promise. That means the burden is off of me, and it's, and it's on me to, what do I do? I supply the weakness. I give it to God and now God, in exchange, He's going to give me a spirit that is of power and of love and of a sound mind. And as we see in the, in the dialogue, in the, in, the, in the ensuing conversation, if you will, the back and forth, we're going to see that here. And so <clears throat> when, when they're in the midst, and this is what I felt... Uh, and Jesus, again, he, he told them, again, coming into this situation. In John 15, he says, hey, guys, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So, again, I can see, that's, that's the way it's going to be. So God is giving them a heads up. And I would say the same thing to us. There are people that are going to be open and receptive. And there's also going to pe- be people that hate the name of Jesus who love the darkness rather than the light, who have total disdain and want nothing to do with the light. So in this moment, when they're set in the center and they're trying to intimidate, I want to tell you that God turns the tables on Satan here. Well, how does he do that? If you're a lamp, if you're a candle, where is the best location to be to give the maximum amount of light to the people in the room. It's on a stand in the center of the room. So who is the light? Who is lifted up? And what is he doing? The light of the gospel, of the truth, is being shed, is being shined in that room of hostility. Because even though they're enemies, Jesus still cares enough about them to want to contend through Peter and John to say the truth. And this was, not, this was not a debate. This was Peter and John speaking the truth, speaking power, speaking the Holy Spirit speaking through them. And the hearers in that room, they're going to have to do something with that. Now we know from later on what they choose to do, but I don't want to get get ahead of myself here. So so the idea is that that light is on display, that Jesus is lifted up and there is light that is flooding that room, whether they want to admit it or not. And then we, we see, as I said before, Um, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but the promise from 2 Timothy 1, 7, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And it made me think of a worship song. And that worship song, I I don't know the title of it, but what the words do say, it, it, it says something to the effect, Lord, I've come to see the weaknesses in me will be stripped away. By the power of his love. And so what we, what we see on display here is a, a transformation, if you will, of heart and character in Peter and John. And I believe that a part of it, even though it doesn't say it, the fact if the Holy Spirit is a spirit of power and love and of sound mind, that that love is on the inside of them. That power is on the inside of them. That sound mind is on the inside of them. And it's got them firm. And they are anchored in it. And that love is so strong, it says in 1 John, that it casts out all fear. And so Peter and John do not back down. They do not turn tail and run. As a matter of fact, they go on the offensive. Hallelujah. We're on the winning team. We know how the story ends. And the other thing in this is that as Christians, we don't live life in a bubble. Excuse me, in a bubble. We live on a battlefield. We're in this world but we're not of this world. But we're on the winning side with Jesus Christ leading us in triumphal procession. With Jesus Christ taking us from faith to faith, from glory to glory. And if I could digress and just say one more little movie thing in in The Lord of the Rings, the second second one, where where, uh, Gandalf the Grey comes before the king who's been taken captive. You know, Gandalf the Grey, he had this robe on, and he's going to confront the evil that's in the king that's taken him captive. And what does he do? When he gets before the king, he sheds that gray and he's clothed in white. We, through the finished work of Christ, have shed the chains. The chains have been broken. The filthy rags have been taken off. And we are made righteous. And we wear righteous robes. And we are clothed with him and hid in him being a new creation so as as Peter and John are there we it's important for us to know that the holy spirit is actively at work in them and and you know by their words what what Peter and John didn't do is important. They didn't call down fire on their enemies. Peter didn't have a hidden dagger or knife somewhere and was going to threaten to, you know, cut off somebody's ear. We don't we don't see them trembling or filled with fear. But what's going on in the side of them? Is is on display. It just doesn't stay on the inside of them. It's going to come out in their in their thoughts, it's in their words, and, and it's going to come out in their actions. And it's been there all along. As as they received that person of the Holy Spirit. So going down farther, then, you know, they, they ask him, By what power? In verse 7, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders and which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter stays on message about the resurrected king and and that he's going to write things and that he (coughs) is going to restore all things. And that these guys who should have known better rejected the cornerstone. And, he, and so he tells them, there's no other name. There's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. So what Peter doesn't do, Peter again, Peter and John, they don't defend themselves. They stay on message and exalt Jesus. And in these words that are said, there is power that is going forth but the unfortunate thing is that for these leaders they recognize what's going on and in in the verses down there they say as much as what are we going to do with these guys they know this man was healed and so if they're not going to accept the truth that only leaves them with one alternative and that is to hold the truth in unrighteousness I'm just trying to wrap my head around that, that here's the truth. I don't want to know the truth, but yet there's the truth. And, and, and so the intent of the religious leaders in trying to get inside Peter and John's head, the tables are turned here. Now, who's inside their head? They're the ones that are wrestling with this conundrum. We know this man we know that the miracle was done and that this man was healed. And in what Peter says, Peter's not fumbling for words. He, he, speaks, he speaks what the Holy Spirit gives them. And, and it's so evident that in verse 17, it's presented in such a way that they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Now, these religious leaders, they knew what kind of men they were. That They know the people that are sharp that are that know how to carry themselves, conduct themselves business wise and and otherwise that you know can stand on their own two feet you know in terms of conversing, but we don't see Peter here fumbling for words. We don't see Peter here apologizing for what he was doing. We don't see Peter here uh, in in an awkward kind of position. What we see here is Peter boldly coming forward looking into the, not only the face of the leaders but the, but the spiritual enemy as well and saying, you guys did this. You crucified him. And he rose again. And he's going to come back. And he's going to restore all things. And the evidences of that restoration are already happening. And they're seeing, they're seeing multitudes come to Christ. They're seeing the healings. They're seeing the kingdom advance. And the, and the enemy, if you will, is in panic mode. If I could say that. And Jesus, and speaking through, through Peter and John, he's trying to shake them to wake them. But they want no part of it. As a matter of fact, it says... But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. We're going to see that w- w- a little bit later when Stephen starts to speak, the, the the deacon who gets stoned. But it's the idea, you know that when the Holy Spirit speaks, when he comes into the room and he contends, the opposition has no answer to that. Never has, never will. All they could do is try to save face. They, they send them out of the room and then they go and talk amongst themselves. What are we going to do? And somewhere it says in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, it says that the Lord takes the wise in their own craftiness. And we see that here. He, ta- he, he takes them down a notch or two. They can't do anything. They can't. They said we can't deny it. A notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Ju- Jerusalem. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So the futility about what they're trying to do. Have you, uh, have you ever tried to shut a door when a mighty wind is blowing through it? Hard to do, so what I want to say here, what the opposition, what the Empire is trying to do here, you had this rushing mighty wind, and now you're seeing on display the the power, not only the power of God, you're hearing the message of God. and this is more than just a a, a, a gale wind. I'm talking about there's a hurricane coming through that door in their speech, if I could say it this way, and they want to shut the door. But it's not going to happen. You're not going to shut the door on the wind of the Holy Spirit when he's got something to say. He is God is unstoppable in his plans and purposes. He opens a door that no man can shut, it says in Scripture. And so they call him back and they tell him, you know, whether it was, uh, and, and Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And, and again, you see that it goes right to the heart of the matter. They are being witnesses. And what do witnesses do? They testify. They testify to what has been seen, what has been evidenced. It's not like they had to come up with a fancy argument. But it's, it's already been given them what to say and to say, guys, we, we have seen firsthand Jesus and what he does and what he wants to do. And we will choose to follow him For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then verse twenty-one. And when they had further threatened them, which tells me that okay, they're being threatened again. They were threatened earlier in this chapter. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because all of, because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. So then, what happens? They go so they're, so they're released. And they go back to their friends and uh, report to them what had happened. And then they pray. I like that. The first response when they get back, they, they share, I believe, how, how God worked through them. But when they get back there, it says that when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and they pray Again, there's that, that, that theme of prayer. The, 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 I believe the importance of prayer that they get back with their friends. What's their first response? We're going to pray. We're going to pray. And it's important to note, I believe, what they pray. So they pray from Psalms 2. And I, I like what they pray because the opening phrase here in this prayer that they pray Sovereign Lord that sets the, their focus on we know that you're in control. We know again with them being with Jesus for so long they know that he is sovereign. And it. it and from this psalm, what it, what it says, why do, why do the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. So not, not only do they have a focus on the sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. You want to talk about credentials. You're talking about sovereign Lord. You're talking about creator. And I think they're speaking that to themselves as well as to God, that this is who you are. And this is where we're anchoring ourselves and now we're going to proceed ahead with this psalm that you have inspired. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So everything that happens, it's good to know, and we need to know that when the enemy tries to overwhelm us or intimidate us, there is nothing that takes God by surprise. And it's good, I think, for us that we, we talk about our father but our Father is also sovereign Lord. That He is the one who is on the throne, who is in control. Oh, so one last thing before I, I forget this. You know, when Peter and John are, are, are talking about there's no other name given by which men may be saved, the name of Jesus. Well, the other thing that the, the the religious leaders I think are completely oblivious to. We've we've had some messages about the council of God, we've had messages about people, uh, God's God's people being invited into the to the council with Him. And so I think it, it's just again I'm saying it another way, but I think it's just a powerful thing that when Peter. And John are there in the midst and they're, sh- and they're proclaiming, they're declaring, they have been invited into, and were a part of the council of God. And now, whether they want to admit it or not, these guys are in the council of God, but they can't see it in what, what Peter declares. So while on the one hand, it looks like this is happening in the greater picture, the counsel of God is being brought into that room as well. And they don't see it. But the neat thing is, is that God through the Holy Spirit, he is allowing us to see it this morning. And as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see how God advances. We're going to see how God uses you and me. We're going to see how God uses the weak to go up against the strong. We're going to see how, if I could say it this way, how God uses the spiritual dummies to confound the wise. We're all prime candidates. And you know, the one thing that I like, I really like about Peter is, you know, when he, when he heals the, the, the lame beggar, he said, hey, silver and gold have I none. But what I do have, I'm going to give you. And that's Jesus. And the confidence that that brought to him that to be able to do that for that man, that was the same confidence that was displayed in that divine appointment that I had at work with that man who was distressed. Silver and gold have I none. If I do, I get a cup of coffee and that's about it. But uh, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I gave to that man that was on distress and he turned a corner and I know that a seed was planted that day and there is going to be a tree, there's going to be a plant that's going to come forth from that seed that was planted. Now, I don't want to steal anybody's thunder and and, and sermons that are coming down the road, but one man in that council, in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel, he recognizes, he says, hey, if this is of man, don't worry about it. It's going to fall apart. But if this is of God, let these men go, and you guys you are not going to be able to stop it. That is probably one of the most powerful statements that is made in the early, uh, outside of the resurrection and, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and all, that this man recognizes that and says, to, to the religious elders and, 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 the, and the risk of feedback, you guys will not be able to stop the advancing of the kingdom. And I say to us this morning, through the Holy Spirit, that we are privileged to be called into and to be participants and to be co-laborers with the king of kings. The one when you look at, at the stars, the one who makes the heavens, I think sometimes we get used to what he says and we miss the awe and wonder about what we're invited into that we can set the captives free, that we can bring light to dark places, that we can open prison doors, that we can push back, that we can push back against the darkness, that we can push back, that we can push back, and that there is no weapon formed against us that shall prosper. We are armed by God Himself hidden in Christ, seated in heavenly places with him. And we are invited into the council of God to be able to war, wage war effectively. And in Ephesians chapter 3, it says as much that we're able to disclose the wisdom of God to the, to the, to the evil that's in high places. That's what it says. And what is equally important is that I believe when we pray that we give God the opportunity to speak, that we listen. That is, as, that is as important, if not more important, than even the prayer itself. And I like the way that God made his presence known there to them, that he's with them. And notice, notice, what, they, notice what the disciples didn't pray. They didn't pray for fire to come down. They didn't pray for them, God, make them cut it out. They didn't look with the idea of wanting to get even. But they knew, and this is what they prayed. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. God is open, His eyes are open, and His ears are attentive to our cries. We sang that this morning, it's true. There's a place, I believe it's in Psalms 40. He inclines his ear and listens. What do they pray? They pray, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, all confidence, not holding back while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And I just, I just want to say here, if I can say it this way, it's okay to pray for signs and wonders and miracles to happen. That's what they did here. I would rather risk stepping out and pray because I am following the leading of the Spirit than think about what if. God is big enough. God is big enough that if there's something that I miss, I would rather step out But I tell you that every time when I've gotten up here, I I will tell you this. I recognize, I know his voice. And I do not give the time of day to my flesh. to say, let's talk about this. No, there is no discussion about this. If this is his voice and this is what he says, I would rather step out. Even if I go down, glub, 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 he will still pull me up. He will still be glorified. He will still be exalted. The individual that I pray for, he will know that he is loved, that he is cared for, that, there's a, that, that God himself is aware of this situation. And so I say this to myself as well, and I'm not saying this to be a heavy, okay? Let me be clear on that. But I think we should, we should be courageous enough that if, if it's here, And the disciples, like in Acts 3, silver and gold have I none. And here in Acts 4, stretch out your hand to heal, to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So it's the idea of of him being glorified, him being exalted, his kingdom advancing. That's it. Nothing more. And that's where I choose to to make my stand. And so it says here, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And I will say this. I like that word filled because it keeps coming back. Filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. You know what, what I know about me? I leak. I leak. I got holes. But it's okay. We can go back and get refilled. Or I could say it this way. And I've said it this way. What God pours into me, I will pour out, depending on what the situation is. I will pour out what God pours into me. And then he fills me up again. He is the well that never runs dry. He is the water that satisfies the thirst. He's the bread that sustains and gives life. And so being, being filled, we see the power of that and it's like they're being filled multiple times and it's like, that's, that's great. It's like, it's like, if I could say it this way, without being, it's like the ever ready bunny. And they don't lose their charge. They keep getting recharged by the Holy Spirit. But it's on a greater scale because that infilling of the Holy Spirit is working inside of us, transforming us, changing us, stripping away our weakness. And in exchange, we are clothed with more of Him, being partakers of His divine nature. If there has been one phrase more than any other phrase that I have spoken to myself to challenge myself and to encourage myself with and the whole idea of being God's witness, it's that I'm a partaker of His divine nature. All right. I'm done. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you're here with us. We thank you, Lord, that when you said we draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. We thank you, Lord, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us your children, that those who believe on you, you've given right to become the children of God, the sons of God. Father, thank you for the privilege that we can advance the kingdom and co-labor with you and push back against the darkness. Father, I pray in the days and weeks ahead, direct our steps establish our thoughts let us be that light in a dark room let us be this light in a dark world and father I pray in the name of Jesus that everywhere we go we will change the spiritual atmosphere father we pray for openness of hearts we pray father God for a bountiful harvest we pray father that every place in which our foot shall tread you have given unto us and we thank you Lord That you are our source. That it is in you that we live. It is in you that we move. It is in you we have our being. That you are light and love and you desire to give light and life and love to all around. Father, use us as your servants to your glory and be exalted in Jesus' name.